Right, the peace of the Lord be with you. All right, good to see you this morning. Second service is a little bit more full than normal. Happy daylight savings. Isn't daylight savings terrible? Do you hate it? It's the worst. I get jet lag from daylight savings. Weeks, my the whole body clock will be all thrown off. But the good thing is, uh, the days will start lasting a little bit longer. Sunlight stays out better. You a fan of sunlight? So it's good. Also, spring is right around the corner. So the dark dread of winter is like going away. Spring is a good thing. And that means that Easter is just around the corner, which means that summer is just around the corner. And that's when joy comes back. God lives in summer. Very excited about it. Hey, while I'm talking about Easter, uh, just to let you know, on Easter Sunday, just like we did last year, we'll have uh, services at 9 and 11, just like we always do. Uh, But then we will also be having our first ever Good Friday service as a congregation right here, 6.30 p.m. I said this in the first service, and then I got confused, and Pastor Shailene is not with us again. There you are. No kids ministry or zero to five? No kids ministry. Okay, that's great. Working as a team. This is great. So no kids ministry, one service, 6.30 p.m. We'll all be in here together. Uh, turning our attention towards Jesus, who poured out his life unto death for us. It's going to be a great night uh, together. Can't wait for it. Okay, Uh, we're in the Sermon on the Mount. If you get the New Life East weekly email, you might have seen uh, that I said that I had a special announcement that I needed to make. And so I'm going to make that special announcement after communion. So you have to stay all the way through to the end. And then I will tell you the things. This is my not-so-thinly-veiled strategy to keep you... On the hook here. But we're in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Jesus says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But he says, Do store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the eye is the lamp of the body, and if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Nobody can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you eat or drink. Or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns. And yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you by worrying add a single hour to your life? And why are you worried about clothes? Look at the flowers of the field, how they grow. They don't labor or spin. And yet I'm telling you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was clothed like one of these. And if that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you little faiths? So don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans are running after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. But Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God And his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. 
Each day has enough trouble of its own. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said. Let's pray. All of the children will be taught by the Lord. And great will be their peace and undisturbed composure. And we are the children of the Lord. And we are praying this morning that you would instruct us again by the Spirit in how to be God's kids. Help us, oh God. We pray that all of the places where our hearts are surrounded by fear, there's dread, anxiety, worry, grasping, striving, all of the things that make for hell in our lives. We pray that you would break those. Would they fall to the ground this morning as we anchor ourselves again in the goodness of God, Jesus Christ, Son of the Father, firstborn among many. Would you come and teach us how to live in your Father's house? Open these scriptures to us, we pray. Pour out your spirit upon us, we pray. Awaken us to the goodness of God, we pray. And we say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Here's a question that's worth thinking about. What actually is the Bible? It's good to ponder every so often. And there are lots of different ways that we could answer that question. One way of answering that question, what is the Bible, is that we could say that the Bible is one long effort to teach us that God is good and that he can be trusted to take care of us. The Bible is trying to convince us that God is good and that he can be trusted to take care of us our food and our clothing, all of our bodily needs, along with our everlasting salvation, all of it has been provided for by our God. And when you open the scriptures, this is evident from the very first pages of it. Think about Genesis chapter 1. God makes this incredibly beautiful, coherent, fruitful place. The heavens and the earth are set in place. At the crown of creation, the Lord says this to the first humans, he says, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Like I haven't put you in the middle of impoverishment, but I've set you down amidst abundance. And even to the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, uh, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. So God provides both for the man and the woman, the first humans, but he also provides for the needs of all the little creatures that move along the ground. Our God is in the business of taking care of our needs. And not just our needs, but the needs of all things in our world. Think about what the psalmist said here, Psalm 65. The psalmist said that you care even for the land. Think about that. That God cares for the land and for the crops and for the grass. You enrich it abundantly. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain. For so you have ordained it. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. You crown the year with your bounty and your carts overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow and the hills are clothed with gladness. Verse 13, the meadows are covered with flocks and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and they sing. The world that we live in that God has created is an abundant world. Everything that we need is provided for inside of it. And God has set his world up so that the needs of all things can be provided for. Not just, again, us, but even down as Jesus talks about the birds of the air and 
the flowers of the field. I mean, that's deeply reflected in Old Testament wisdom. The psalmist said this in Psalm 145, that the eyes of, what does the text say? All, the eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. And then this, I love this. You open up your hand and you satisfy the desires of every living thing. Jesus looks around at this world, a world where God has promised to provide for us and has promised to provide even for the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the grasslands. And he says, what are you worrying about? The pagan world runs that doesn't know God runs after all this stuff food and clothing and money and all of that. But your heavenly father, like before he created you, he knew what you would need. And so he set up a universe that's enough for you. He knows that you need all this stuff. So you don't need to spend all of your time and effort and energy obsessing about how you look and your clothes and where your next meal is coming from. But Jesus says, because of who your father in heaven is, you're permitted to seek first the what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. You don't have to worry. God's got it figured out. We are, I think, slow to believe these things if we ever believe them this side of eternity. It takes us a while, doesn't it? Now, I'm born and raised in the church and I have heard these scriptures my whole life. I've heard all of the texts of the scripture that talk about God's promises of provision for us. And I grew up in a household that believed in God's promises of provision. But man, there was something in me as I made my way through my high school years that was just ridiculously tight-fisted and I don't know where that came from. Some of it, I have come to speculate over the year, came from my coupon clipping mom. Any of you had moms that clip coupons? We don't, everything's electronic now. But my mom would like, I mean, she was so diligent with it, clipping the coupons and she would file them all away that she'd get all these little rebate coupons too and she'd file those away. Again, I remember my mom, this happened so many times, she'd come home from the grocery store and she'd be unloading the stuff, you know, and she'd saved hundreds of dollars on all this stuff. And then she would pull out a tube of toothpaste and she would go, do you know that they paid me to take this toothpaste off their hands? Three whole dollars. And I know that she was seeking our applause for that and she should have gotten our applause. You know what little Andrew thought? Little Andrew thought, we must be poor because we can't pay full price. We have to have people pay us for toothpaste. This is what we have to have. And something was like really, my heart got clenched in that. And I tithed like you're supposed to. But beyond the tithe, like asked me to be generous to anybody. I just couldn't do it. I had 15 or 1600 bucks in my little savings account, you know, when I was in high school. And I was so afraid, like irrationally afraid of that getting down to zero that I just, I, not only would I not spend money on other people, I couldn't even spend money on myself. Mandy knew me during those years. And I walked around in tattered clothes all the time. And not because I was trying to make some like grunge statement, nor because of the desert fathers and mothers of the first few centuries or anything like that. I did it because I was afraid of not having money. So I would literally wear shirts until they were falling off of my body. I've come to see in years since. And I actually did in some ways pat myself on the back for that. Oh yeah, I'm very frugal. You're not frugal. You're tightwad is what you are. And you're very deeply afraid. 
you don't trust that God is capable of providing for you. I've come to see in the years since that that's a sickness of the heart. That kind of clenched fist, tight-fisted, heart closed down, I have to hang on to my stuff because there's nobody looking out for me. That's a problem, guys. In the history of the church, we called it avarice. And what's interesting is that avarice has two different dimensions to it. It both is about that kind of tight-fistedness that won't surrender possessions, won't be generous. But it also looks like greed. Sometimes the, the way that avarice looks is that what we do is we try to stockpile the largest amount of stuff that we possibly can so that we're immune to any kind of danger out there and also so that people think that we're kind of at the top of the power of, you know, the pile of power and all of that. I had a friend in college several years later, good guy, raised in a Christian home. His dad was a church and ministry leader, had labored for many years spreading the gospel and all this stuff. And this guy, good guy. But I remember getting in conversations with him about his future, his past, where he sensed he was going. And one of the things that he would say over and over again to me is he would say, man, I love my dad and I'm so grateful for what my dad did in ministry and I love my parents, but man, we spent a lot of years just kind of living hand to mouth. We never, there were times that we didn't know where our next meal was going to come from. There were times that we didn't know how the bills were going to be paid, how the mortgage was going to be paid. He said, and I, that was scary for us as a family and I'm never going to live that way. Made a vow. That kind of like need to rely on God for daily bread, I, I'm, that, I'm not going to do that. And I remember I watched it happen in his mind that that kind of openness and generosity and trust in God all of a sudden became this sort of obsession with making lots of money. And all of a sudden he's reading these business books and real estate books. I remember he read Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. I just got obsessed with this idea of building this big real estate business and starting other businesses and making lots of money. And I knew that he was in trouble, like spiritually, mentally, when he invited, him and his wife invited Mandy and I over for dinner. And after dinner, he pulled out Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the board game. I mean... Not only is this creepy, but that game sucks, bro. Sorry. <laughs> Monopoly is way better. <laughs> it's crazy. Uh, but I watched that thirst for wealth overthrow his mind and overthrow his heart. And we lost track of them over the years and then caught up with them on Facebook several years ago. And him and his wife divorced. And the banner photo on his page is him with his hair slicked back, cool sunglasses, leaning against a BMW. And his wife with their kids has since remarried and is living a happy family life. The quest to stockpile resources, to accumulate money and wealth, and possessions, and with it, status, is an anti-Christian ambition. And it's spiritually dangerous to us, which is why Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that godliness with, what does the text say? Godliness with, what's contentment? I'm okay with what I have and who I am. 
and I don't need to rule the roost and I don't need to be king of the hill. I don't need to have ambition driving me to stockpile more stuff. I have myself and I have the stuff around me and I have my God and that's enough. And Paul says, godliness with contentment is what? It's great gain. Those people that aren't worried about where their next meal is coming from, those people that are living in trust in God, those are the happiest people in the world. Not because they have so much stuff, but because they know where their source is. Godliness with contentment is great game. Paul says, we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be, we're going to be content with that. Did you eat today? Okay. Do you have clothes on your back today by a show of hands? No, nobody's naked here, so. Everybody has been provided for. Think about the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. We talked about it last week. Our Father who art in heaven. And I, thy, thy, thy on earth. And then what's the next line? You ate today. You have clothes on your back today. You have a roof over your head today. The prayer has been answered today. God has been faithful today. Jesus says, that's how you're supposed to live. You wake up like the Israelites did. They found manna on the floor of the desert and they took that in and that was enough. And every time they tried to save it and store it up, do you remember what happens? Maggots. Because whenever we live outside of faith, our life rots. It falls apart. Paul says, if we have food and clothing, we're going to be content with that. And then this, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and they have pierced themselves with many griefs. Or as Jesus says, nobody can serve two masters. (laughs) That's it right there. Either you're going to hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You, what does it say? You, you what, what's the word there? What You what? Cannot. You can't. In fact, that word for money in the original Greek is mammon. Mammon was a god of the ancient world. Jesus is saying your devotion, your allegiance, your piety is at stake here. You can't serve God and money at the same time. Christians are not people who say things like, in answer to the question, like, what's your goal in life? Christians don't answer that by saying, well, I want to make a lot of money. Well, I want to have a huge house and nice cars and lots of stuff. That ambition is antithetical to Christian discipleship. Christians live for higher and better things. Jesus says, seek first the, and what else? The righteousness that what we do is we make our ambition the kingdom of God and the righteousness and we find that all of the stuff is ours as well. Friends, God intends us to free us from our slavery to money, which really, by the way, is a slavery to fear. He doesn't want us to stockpile our stuff because we're afraid about where our next meal is coming from. He intends for us to live in dependence upon his Father in heaven. Slavery to money is really a slavery to fear. Jesus has come to free us from all of that. The question is, how does he do it? And you know what I'm really tempted to say? I'm really tempted to say, well, what you need to do if you want to really get free from the fear of not having enough and all of that is that you just need to build up your faith a little bit more, you know? You just need to believe more 
and try harder to put more of your faith in God. And when you feel your faith rise up to a certain threshold, then you can sort of move forward in faith. And Jesus is really smart. Do you know this? Dallas Willard once said that Jesus is not just nice, he is competent. He is brilliant. His intelligence is enough to meet the deepest human needs. Jesus is brilliant. And so what Jesus doesn't do is say, hey, all of these things are true, so just believe more and then start doing. Jesus actually starts his teaching not by belief, but he starts it with actions. Watch what Jesus says here. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin don't destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. Jesus doesn't start with a bunch of philosophy or theory about God. Jesus just tells us, hey, this is what you're going to do with your money. Store up treasures in heaven. But Jesus, you haven't told us much more about this whole thing. I know. But just do it. Get acting. And somehow it's the acting that puts you in the domain of faith. It does something to you. Think about the story of Jesus with the rich young ruler. You remember this? Man with great possessions comes to Jesus one day and he says, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the young man comes back to him and he says, well, I read these commandments. You know, don't lie, don't murder, don't cheat, don't commit adultery, don't steal, honor your father and mother. And Jesus looks at him, the text of scripture says, and loves him and says, you know that there's one thing that you lack. Go, take all of your possessions, sell them, And give them to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. And do you know the scripture says that that young man was so overwhelmed by what he heard from Jesus. That he went away sad because he had great wealth. Think about what Jesus says. You've done everything just right. You've obeyed the commandments just fine. But you have this harbor of safety that is your money and your wealth and your possessions. Which means that you've never committed yourself to wild trust in God. Which means that that part of you, that part of the human heart that depends upon reliance on God to know life, that's never actually woken up in you. So here's what you're going to do. Sell your possessions and give to the poor and then you'll have treasures in heaven and then come and follow me. Jesus actually calls us to do Something. How many of you remember that movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade? This was a long time ago, very long, before cell phones and stuff. But you know how it is. In the movie, he's got this like quest. He's trying to find the Holy Grail, right? That Jesus drank from at the Last Supper with his disciples. And he's in this place and he's got to like do all these tasks to get to this thing. And he comes to this point where there is this huge chasm. And there is like this invisible bridge that supposedly is underneath him, right? And there's no way to prove that the bridge is there. But he's got to cross the bridge to get the other side to do the thing. And you see him trying to work it out. The terror, the abject terror of like, if it's not there, I die. That's the proposition. And at some point, like there's no way, and there's no way to like prove the bridge is actually there. At some point, he just has to shift the weight and let go of himself. And the moment that he does that, he shifts the weight, lets go of himself, the bridge, the invisible bridge, appears there underneath his feet. Friends, faith is something like that. You can't prove ahead of time that it's going to work. 
at some point, and God doesn't give that to us, by the way. There's just a Kierkegaard said, he called it, faith is a leap into the void. (laughs) That what we do at some point, we don't just work ourselves up with more belief, but at some point we just act. We jump. And we find somehow in that that things open up in us. Faith takes root in us. You say, how do you do that? What's the place to start? I think that in the church, the place that you start is tithing. Some of you are like, oh no, a message on tithing. I'm not giving you a message on tithing, but it's the place where you start. 10% of your income right off the top that you're not giving God the scraps, you're not giving him the leftovers, but you're giving him the first and the best of your strength. That will do. If you don't give anything yet to the church, if you don't give anything, you like this part of your faith is not taking shape in you or whatever, I'm telling you, the moment you start writing checks and making them the first checks that you write, you'll start feeling, oh my gosh, the pinch of that. Where, well, where is the money coming from? Will we have enough? All of a sudden, all, like, all these good things wake up in you. Lauren Winter, PhD, Duke theologian, says this. She was asked many years ago, what's the thing that concerns you most about Christianity in the modern age? And she said, of all of the things that she could have said, by the way, all of the things that are concerning about the church at large, she says the things that concerns me the most is our failure to tithe. She says, I hear it all the time. I just can't afford to give right now. I hear it from my middle-class American peers, and I wonder if we can't afford to give now, why not? And if we can't afford to give now, when will we be able to afford to give? I know of nothing that will transform someone's life more abruptly than beginning to tithe If we want to learn about dependence on God, we tithe. If we want to have treasure in heaven, we tithe. And if we want to have any hope of having solidarity with the poor, what do you do? You tithe. You give God your first and your best. And somehow that shifting of the weight takes place. Now, you've heard me say this before, but I've also heard many people over the years, they have said to me, well, pastor, you know, like the New Testament doesn't really teach tithing, does it? You know, like the Old Testament, that was kind of the principle you gave 10% or whatever. But Jesus, he doesn't really talk about tithing all that much. And when he does, he kind of sets it in a negative context. So maybe tithing is like an old covenant thing. And then the new covenant is like, we all just kind of do whatever we want to do. And maybe not. Well, actually, when you read the New Testament, you know what the New Testament standard is? It's not 10%. It's 100%. So maybe just pick one and be happy about it. (laughs) But seriously, I think that the thing probably that's more accurate to say is that the New Testament standard is just radical generosity. And you say, well, how much is radical generosity? (laughs) Yeah, I have no idea. (laughs) It's different for every one of you. I just know that somehow we have to start feeling the bite of what we give. So that when we pray the prayer, give us this day our, we actually mean it. Pastor Daniel was telling us about a family that started going to Friday night not too long ago. Guy came up to him after a service and said, Pastor Daniel, I'm so grateful for this community. Just wanted you to know that we're going to start tithing here. And he said, many years ago, my wife and I, we made a commitment that as the Lord grew our income, that we would also grow our giving proportionally to it. He said, so we started giving 10% years ago. And the Lord blessed us, so we started giving 15%. And then we started giving 20, and then we started giving 25, and then we started giving 30, and then we started giving 35, and then 40, and then 45, and now we're giving 50% of our income, and we want you to know that's coming straight to the church to fuel the ministry of the church. 50 
freaking percent. Some of you are like, that sounds terrible. But I guarantee that those people know something about contentment in God that most of us in this room do not know. There's something about surrendering your resources to God. There's something about feeling the bite of being generous that does things to you that nothing else can do. C.S. Lewis said it so well, where he said that I'm afraid that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. You give to the point where you say, give us this day our daily bread, and you actually mean it. And you say, Andrew, all of this sounds absolutely awful and horrible and terrifying. I know. But do you know what the upshot of it is? The upshot of it is that when you live in this way, when you give in this way, something opens up in you that cannot be opened up in any other way. Ronald Rawheiser, one of the great spiritual writers of our age, says this. He says that when we act like God acts, we get to feel like God feels. And you know the text, John three sixteen. How does God act? God so loved the world that he did what? He gave. And he didn't just give a pittance. He didn't give a tithe. He didn't tip humanity for a job well done. He gave the most precious thing that he had. He gave himself. And how does God feel? God is ecstatically over the moon, wildly happy all the time. Because God gives God's self away. And when we're touched by the gift of God, we learn to do the same thing. When we act like God acts, we get to feel like God feels. And so Jesus says, you just go ahead and do this. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what happens? All the other stuff is taken care of. Can we stand? Spirit of God, would you fall upon us here? All of the places where we're tight-fisted, all of the places where out of fear or vanity, we have made it our ambition to accumulate more, probably so that we don't need you anymore. (laughs) Would you crush all of that in us? In Christ Jesus, you have made us to be gifts given for the life of the world. You haven't made us to live in fear or anxiety or worry about ourselves or our resources or where our next meal is coming from. And so we pray that you would transform us by the gift of God, by the gift of the Spirit of God in us. We pray that you would open us up, open our hearts up, that you would strike down tight-fistedness in us. That you make us generous like you're generous. And so we remember before you, Lord Jesus, that on the night that you were betrayed, after you had given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples and you said, take this, all of you, and eat. And this is my body, it's broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup saying, drink from this, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Do it whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. God gives God's self to us. And as we're touched by the gift of God, we become self-givers for others. And so we pray, Jesus, that by the power of your spirit, you would rest upon these elements and our participation in them that we'd find ourselves drawn up into the dynamic of your life. Trusting as you are trusting in your heavenly father, generous as you have been and always will be generous with us. Grant that we pray in the name of the father and the son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, I'm gonna invite our servers to come forward to serve communion this morning. Communion will be on my right and my left up front here. If you're new with us, we'll empty out in the center aisles here. Then you'll come forward and you'll be handed a little wafer. You'll dunk it in the cup and then participate, partake of the elements as you head back to your seats. Brothers and sisters, I say to you this morning that these are the gifts of God and they are given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion.